Makes me want to cry too. It's sad and it's funny to see muscle men feel blue. They're meant to be so tough, but even sometimes they've had enough. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting in Calgary on Treaty 7 land and Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Getting knocked out like Rocky Swing in the ring. Don't tell me there's no such thing. This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. I devote my work to race as the axis of inequity and racism as the system of inequity. Not because I don't recognize that all this other stuff is going on, but because racism is foundational in our nation's history, continues to have profound impacts on the health and well-being of our citizens, and yet many people are in denial of its continued existence and relevance. That's Kamara Phyllis-Jones, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Kamara Phyllis-Jones on racism and health. For more than a year, the public was complaining about the drinking water in Flint, Michigan. The water was so pungent and foamy that one priest had stopped using it for baptisms. The state's Department of Environmental Quality confidently announced, anyone who is concerned about lead in the drinking water in Flint can relax. Flint is a majority African-American city. In nearby Detroit, 85% black, schools are heavily infested with rats, roaches, and mold. Might those conditions affect the health of an overwhelmingly black student population? In Baltimore, another largely black city, the levels of lead poisoning among children is three times the national rate. Racism is a big part of the social determinants of health. It's past time we acknowledge that and do something about it. Our guest today is Kamara Phyllis-Jones. She's a family physician and epidemiologist whose work focuses on the impact of racism on health. She's the president of the American Public Health Association. She's taught at the Harvard School of Public Health, and she is senior fellow at the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. She spoke at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work. In March 2015, because the COVID-19 pandemic is disproportionately affecting communities of color, we are rebroadcasting this program. Kamara Phyllis-Jones. So I'm going to start, actually, not with a discussion on racism, but a discussion on levels of health intervention. And this is going to get all of us to understand why I, as a physician and MPH and PhD epidemiologist, even talk about racism. So here we go. Do, 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 do. Whoops! Boom! Somebody has just fallen off of the cliff of good health. And if that were you or somebody in your family, you would be delighted to find an ambulance there at the bottom of the cliff to speed you on to care. But if we were concerned about others who might come along that cliff, if we were concerned about community health or population health or public health, we might well ask ourselves, what can we put in place along this cliff besides just stationing lots of ambulances at the bottom? So somebody in this room is going to say, I know, I know, I know. Let's put a net halfway down. Because even if people fall, we can catch them before they get crunched up at the bottom. 
That is an excellent idea. Although we all recognize that nuts have holes in them, so some people might fall through the cracks, right? But we could even make that a trampoline halfway down, no holes in that. But even if there were a trampoline halfway down that cliff, we might find ourselves with lots of people just bouncing up and down at half functionality, not able to get back to the top of the cliff. So what else could we put in place as a health intervention? Well, certainly we should, we should think about a fence at the edge of the cliff to keep people from falling in the first place. But that's got to be a very, very strong fence if there's a lot of population pressure against it. So what else can we do as a health intervention? We can move the population away from the edge of the cliff. So I'm going to label these interventions that I've described so far. And my labels are really coming from the health perspective, but of course they apply to all of our you know, social services. But the ambulance at the bottom represents medical care and what we describe as tertiary prevention in public health. So in public health, we talk about three levels of prevention, primary, secondary, tertiary, where tertiary prevention is preventing the complications from disease that's already manifest. For example, preventing the amputations from diabetes. The net or trampoline, these are our safety net programs and secondary prevention, which is about early detection, our screening programs, including even things like prenatal care. The fence at the edge of the cliff represents primary prevention, keeping things from happening in the first place, including, for example, immunizations. And moving the population away from the edge of the cliff is what we're describing in our public health world as addressing the social determinants of health, where the social determinants of health are those determinants of health and illness that are outside of the individual. So they're beyond our genes, they're beyond our individual behaviors, and they are, in fact, the context in which our behaviors arise and in which they confer either risk or protection. So, for example, the social determinants of health include our neighborhood conditions and whether or not you live in a so-called food desert or you have plenty of access to fresh fruits and vegetables, whether or not your neighborhood is targeted with liquor stores and fast food joints and the like, whether or not you can go and walk at night in your neighborhood or it's unsafe, whether or not the parks are where the children frolic and play or is that where the drugs are sold and so on and so on. It includes poverty or wealth. It includes educational opportunities, all of these contexts of our lives. Now, this is a nice little diagram that I actually first jotted on the back of an envelope when I was in New Zealand in 1999. I was studying the Maori Pakia health disparities there, and I was trying to say, okay, is families first? What kind of program is that? Is that a fence or a net? And I was trying to parsing out. I was parsing out all of the efforts that they were doing in New Zealand. We could take this diagram to any community or even to the U.S. Congress and say, how should we be spending our health resources? And of course, I think we would endorse having some of all of it, but it's a matter of emphasis. Do we want all of our money really focused on ambulances or do we want to be moving the population away from the edge of the cliff? So I want you to keep this cliff in the back of your mind. We're going to shift gears for just a moment to talk about how health disparities arise and then we'll come back to the cliff. So how do health disparities arise? Well, especially when you're talking about racial ethnic health disparities, we unfortunately have lots of evidence about differences in the quality of care received within the healthcare system. And many of you may not know, but in 2002, the Institute of Medicine released its unequal treatment report, which pulled together what were then hundreds of studies, and if we were to do the same thing again now, it would be thousands of studies, documenting differences in how your chest pain might be followed up or evaluated depending on your race, or how much pain medication you would get in an emergency department if you came in with a long bone fracture depending on your ethnicity or your race. 
even within the same healthcare system. So even controlling to we're all in the VA system or we all have Medicare. But that IOM panel recognized that it's not just differences in quality of care within the healthcare system that are giving rise to these disparities, because of course there are problems and differences in access to the healthcare system in the first place. That's the second level at which health disparities arise. But then we all in this room recognize that health is not created within the health sector. So the third level, and I would say most important level at which health disparities arise, are because of differences in life opportunities, exposures, and stresses, which are making some individuals and communities sicker than others in the first place. And then the, these individuals are sometimes the very same ones who are frustrated because of limited access to the healthcare system, and then the lucky ones who get into the system are sometimes further injured because of differences in quality of care. So now thinking about these three levels at which health disparities arise, and in fact, I would have to say, it's like a pyramid with a huge base of it are the differences in the quality of our lives, right? The huge hidden iceberg part of it is that. So now thinking about these three levels at which health disparities arise, differences in quality of care, differences in access to care, and differences in underlying exposures and opportunities, let's go back to the cliff. But now we're going to recognize that we're really not dealing with a flat two-dimensional cliff, but actually we are dealing with a three-dimensional cliff. And at some parts of the cliff, there might be an ambulance there, but maybe that ambulance has a flat tire. So it's slow or goes off in the wrong direction. Or maybe there's no ambulance there at all. And maybe there's no net, nor fence. And usually, at those parts of the cliff, the population is being pushed closer to the edge. So now I'm going to label these observations about our three-dimensional cliff with how health disparities arise. Where the differences in quality of care are represented by the ambulance that's there, but it has a flat tire, so it's slower, goes off in the wrong direction. Differences in access to care are no ambulance, no net, no fence. And differences in underlying exposures and opportunities is represented by the closer proximity of that greeny population to the edge. So now that we recognize that we're dealing with a three-dimensional cliff, we have a few questions that we need to answer. First, how did the cliff become three-dimensional? And that's usually because of historical injustices that are being perpetuated by present-day contemporary structural factors. But given that the cliff is three-dimensional, we need to ask, why are there differences in how resources are distributed along that cliff face? And why are there differences in who's found at different parts of the cliff? Why are the greenies being pushed closer to the edge while the oranges are back there and away? And when you start asking and addressing these questions, you are doing something different from addressing the social determinants of health, which are the context of our lives. You're now addressing the social determinants of equity, which determine the range of context that we even see in our cities, and then who is found at different parts in different contexts. So these social determinants of equity include systems of power, systems of decision-making like racism, sexism, heterosexism, economic systems like capitalism and the like. So in this cliff, I've actually distilled three different dimensions of health intervention. And if you remember your high school geometry, where one dimension is a single line, you know, two dimensions is a flat plane, three dimensions is space, on that first dimension, a line at the edge of the cliff is where we can display our health services, our ambulance net and fence, our preventive and curative health services. In fact, if you say the word health in this country anywhere, people will complete that thought for you and say health care or health services. It happens all the time, right? And you know, we want 
excellent health services. And furthermore, we want universal access to high quality health services. But that in and of itself, we've already seen through the cliff, that in and of itself is not going to result in large and sustained improvements in health outcomes or the elimination of health disparities because you can overwhelm any system, right? We want universal access to high quality health care because that's what a civilized society does when it values all of its people equally. But we recognize that as good as your health services are, if you have a lot of people crowded up against that fence, you can overwhelm anything. So we must move into the second dimension, which we can display in a flat plane and address the social determinants of health. We need to move the population away from the edge of the cliff, addressing poverty and housing conditions and other neighborhood conditions if we want to have large and sustained improvements in health outcomes. But if we don't recognize that we're dealing with a three-dimensional cliff, we can actually address social determinants of health and make health disparities worse because we can move some of the population away from the edge of the cliff, but not all of the population away from the edge of the cliff. So we must move into that third dimension and address the social determinants of equity, including racism, sexism, heterosexism, and the like, if we're going to achieve social justice and eliminate health disparities. That is, we need to move all of the population away from the edge of the cliff and distribute resources equitably throughout. So this is the end of what I call my cliff analogy, and I use this for a lot of different reasons. First of all, in a general audience, by now I say I've said the word racism about three or four times and nobody fell off of their chair, right? <laughs> so if I'm just talking to a general audience that doesn't really know I'm gonna come and talk about racism, this is how I introduce racism as being pertinent in the health enterprise. But it's also important because there are some people medical clinicians as well as social work clinicians who might be spending all of their professional effort as an ambulance driver. I mean, that's where they are. They are they're delivering services on the ground to people who have fallen and are crunched and are hurt, and they're trying to rescue, right? And that's important, but it's important for all of us who are trying to be ambulance drivers to understand that there are other parts of the health enterprise who are there to help us, right? right? And then even if you spend your whole professional career as an ambulance driver in your civic life, away from work, you can be addressing the net or the fence or moving the population or addressing those decision-making processes that are part of the social determinants of equity. So there's all of that. And the third reason that I use this cliff is because some people who are all about addressing the social determinants of health and poverty will never say the word racism. Right. Never. Right? But it's all important. We have to do all of it. We need to address poverty and all this, but we need to do it for everybody, and we have to recognize that we're dealing with a three-dimensional cliff, if we're going to do that. We must say racism is one of these systems that's made the cliff three-dimensional and is perpetuating it as three-dimensional if we're going to be successful in any of our work. Why is there a fear behind using the word racism? Like, because so many people stop at race or even, you know, cultural competence or discrimination. You know, they talk about, I won't say the whole word racism and get the ism out, you know. <laughs> It's because people fear racism is a personal indictment. And people are saying, I'm a good person. I wasn't here 400 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. When I talk about racism, I'm talking about a system. Okay? And in fact, I'm very clear that I'm not talking about an individual character flaw or a personal moral failing or even a psychiatric illness, as some people have suggested. But I'm talking about a system of power. And a system of doing what? It's a system of structuring opportunity and of assigning value. 
And on what basis is the opportunity structured and on what basis is the value assigned? It's based on the social interpretation of how one looks, which is what we call race. Now, you're looking at me here. I don't know here in, in Denver, but I know certainly in Atlanta, you look at me and I'm clearly black. But if you were to look at me in some parts of Brazil, I would be just as clearly white. If you were to look at me in South Africa, I would be clearly colored. And even though I'd have the same physical appearance in those three settings, the social interpretation of my appearance would assign me to three different racial groups. And if I were to stay in any of those places long enough, then my health outcome would probably take on that of the group to which I was assigned, even though I have the same genes in all three places. So here I have racism as a system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on the social interpretation of how one looks, based on so-called race. What are the impacts of this system? Racism unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities. And when we think or talk about racism at all in this country, which is very infrequently, but when we do, this is where we go. But it doesn't take very long to recognize that every unfair disadvantage has its reciprocal unfair advantage. So that racism is also unfairly advantaging other individuals and communities. And that's the whole issue of unearned white privilege that we hardly ever talk about in this country. But even as we have a system that's either unfairly disadvantaging or unfairly advantaging individuals and communities, it is important for us to recognize that racism is sapping the strength of our whole society through the waste of human resources. And examples of that include how we as a nation are not vigorously investing in the full, excellent public education of all of our kids. Because the blinders of racism make us believe there's no genius in the barrios or in the ghettos or on the reservations. You know, we can get along very well, thank you, without those kids. But of course, there's genius in all of our communities. And if we were to invest in that genius, we could be doing so much better as a nation or even as a world. You know, we might already be up on Mars, I say, farming, if that were a good thing to do. <laughs> if we were to invest in all of that genius. Another way that racism and the blinders of racism that make us not value all of us equally saps the strength of the whole society is how we as a nation, because of these blinders, are complacent with what I describe as the wholesale warehousing disproportionately of black and brown men in our prison system. As if that did not, <laughs> as if that did not separate us from human potential. And there's so many people caught up in that system, either behind bars or circling in and out, can't, can't get out, you know, can't get a job, can't get housing, public housing, can't vote in most states, right? And if you know these people, you know there are many geniuses caught up in this that if there had only been some other way, they could be contributing so productively to our society. Actually, I think when we look about the impacts of racism, the unfair disadvantage, the unfair advantage, and how it saps the strength of all of us, I think that that third bullet, how it saps the strength of all of us, is really where we might need to be taking our media messages and our research and all like that. Because whether you as an individual are unfairly disadvantaged or unfairly advantaged, realization that is sapping the strength of all of us might get us all on board to help dismantle this system and put in its place a system where all people can know their full potential and have the opportunity to develop to it. Now, when I think about racism and health, so that was kind of a global definition. But I find it useful when I think, how could racism be causing more asthma in this neighborhood than in the other neighborhood, or more obesity or diabetes or whatever it is? I find it useful to think about three levels of racism that I describe as institutionalized, personally mediated, 
and internalized. So I'm going to define each of these levels, give examples of how they can impact health, and then I'm going to illustrate these levels of racism with my Gardner's Tale allegory. It's a teaching story. Well, first, the definitions. Institutionalized racism is that system, those structures, policies, practices, norms, and values that result in differential access to the goods, services, and opportunities of society by race. This is the kind of racism that does not require an identifiable perpetrator. This is the kind of racism that's been institutionalized in our laws and in our norms and in our structures. And in fact, this is the racism that often shows up as inherited disadvantage or its reciprocal inherited advantage. It, it's manifest in terms of material conditions as well as in terms of access to power. So examples include differential access to quality housing, or equal educational opportunities, or equal employment opportunities, or even the same level of income at the same level of employment. And we all know that these things have health ramifications. Differential access to medical facilities, which even includes linguistic access to medical facilities. Differential access to a clean environment and the whole reality of the disproportionate placement of toxic dump sites and the like in communities of color. In terms of access to power, differential access to information, which could be health information or social services information or even information about our own histories. Differential access to resources, not just capital resources, but networking resources and knowing somebody on the board or having somebody with admitting privileges or can connect you somewhere. And differential access to voice, voice in government, voice in media, and the like. Now, often, somebody might raise their hand and say, well, Dr. Jones, housing, education, employment, income, isn't that what we call social class? Are you talking about racism or are you really talking about social class? That's a very important question that many people in this room are like, okay, answer that. Right, I know. Okay, I know. So I am. So I'm going to answer it. And my answer starts with the observation that it doesn't just so happen that people of color in this country are overrepresented in poverty while white people in this country are overrepresented in wealth. That is not just a happenstance. And for each stigmatized, marginalized, oppressed group of color, there's been some initial historical insult. So for American Indians, it was the taking of the land and the genocide and then moving of the survivors to the reserved lands, the reservations. And then in some instances, if something good was found under one reservation, move them to someplace else. For people who were in Mexico, well, it became New Mexico. And then even people who, right now, people coming to pick our fruits and vegetables and this whole outcry against as if we, because of the genocide of the American Indians, were not a land of immigrants. For Chinese laborers who came to build our railroads, unable to bring their families and unable to marry here. For people of African descent, where the insult was started with the kidnapping of West African people in our importation across the Atlantic with tremendous loss of life in the Middle Passage. And then what I describe as the coerced usury of the unpaid labor for centuries of the survivors and their offspring to build this country, right? But then people might even stop me there and say, well, Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones, okay, hold up right there. Don't you recognize, right, 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 right. Don't you recognize that the enslaved people were emancipated in 1865? That's fully 150 years ago now. You know, all else being equal, don't you think the impacts of slavery would have washed out by now? But the key phrase there is all else being equal. And all else has not been equal since 1865, and all else still is not equal today. 
And there are still what I describe as contemporary structural factors in our laws, structures, policies, practices, all this, that are perpetuating each of these initial historical injustices. So when people ask me, are you talking about social class or are you talking about racism? I say that institutionalized racism, which includes those structural factors, explains why we even see an association between social class and race in this country. It's an important insight. It's an important insight because it is important for us to eliminate poverty. I would go further than eliminating poverty. I would even go to you know, eliminating income inequality, right? Give me a magic wand. I would go there, boom, 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 done. But if I did that and did not pay attention to the background structures, policies, practices, norms, and values that were put in place, the background stuff that was put in place to differentially shunt different groups to different possibilities, even if I equalize social class today, within one generation, we would start to see a stratification again by race in terms of social class. Before I leave institutionalized racism, I also need to say that it can be through acts of doing, acts of commission, as well as acts of not doing, acts of omission, and very often, institutionalized racism shows up as inaction in the face of need. The second level of racism, personally mediated racism, I define as differential assumptions about the abilities, motives, and intents of others by race, and then differential actions based on those assumptions. So this is what most people think of when they hear the word racism. Somebody did something to somebody. Right. It includes the different idea, the prejudice, and then the different action, the discrimination. And many people call this interpersonal racism. You will see that I call it the mouthful of personally mediated racism because I am still understanding racism as a system. And this is the system mediated through people. How could this impact our health? Well, this slide is published in 2000. American Journal of Public Health, where the leading thing is police brutality, right? You know, I used to say, imagine being pulled over for driving while Latino or driving while black and interpreted as resisting arrest and hit upside the head or worse. Now all I have to say is, you know, Eric Garner, Mike Brown, what is the young man's name in Madison? Troy um, Johnson. Um, you know, Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, Amadou Diallo. Uh, let's have the litany, the sad, sad litany, and we don't, know the, we don't know the tenth of it. We don't know the hundredth of it. This is happening in our cities every day where black lives are seen to not matter and brown lives are seen, and red lives and red women's lives are seen to not matter. So police brutalities can certainly affect your health. I, I don't even, you know, when a police officer assumes that your cell phone or your wallet is a gun. Anyway, we'll get off of that. It's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. It is overwhelming, especially if you love young black men like I love my son, my 19-year-old son. Physician disrespect. That can be as subtle as a physician not giving a patient the full range of treatment options because the physician figures, well, that patient couldn't afford or wouldn't comply or you know, wouldn't understand or whatever it is that they might assume. Or it could be quite blatant, like sterilization abuse, which has had many iterations in our nation's history. 
Shopkeeper vigilance, being followed around in stores, or waiter indifference, not getting quick, respectful treatment. And these are just two examples of what people, some people call everyday racism. These are parts of the microaggressions that probably contribute to elevated blood pressures in communities of color. <laughs> blood pressures that don't go down at night, right? Teacher devaluation, which is a very important manifestation of personally mediated racism. When a teacher looks at a young child and thinks, that child can't learn and puts them off in the ADD track. That child will never even know their full potential, much less have the opportunity to develop to their full potential. Like institutionalized racism, personally, personally mediated racism can be through acts of doing, acts of commission, as well as acts of not doing, acts of omission. But even more important is that personally mediated racism can be unintentional, as well as intentional. You do not have to have intended to be racist to have had a racist impact. The third level of racism, internalized racism, I define as acceptance by members of the stigmatized races of negative messages about our own abilities and intrinsic worth. Here I'm speaking from the point of view of members of the stigmatized races. And I actually have um, colleagues who do anti-racism training, and they stop me on this one and say, well, what about the internalized sense of entitlement that many white people walk around with in this country? Isn't that also internalized racism? And I agree. But I'm going to just put that with my institutionalized as kind of a background normative thing right now and speak from the point of view of members of the stigmatized races and how internalized racism can detrimentally impact our health. Self-devaluation. Feeling maybe I'm really not as good as. Maybe I shouldn't try to graduate from high school or apply to that college or apply for that job or try to move into that neighborhood. And this self-devaluation actually turns into fratricide. So black on black, Latino and Latino crime, because if you don't value yourself, then you won't value others who look just like you, and you just as soon off them as not. The white man's ice is colder syndrome. That phraseology comes from my parents' generation and what it meant then and what it still means today for people of colors. Say that you're black and you need a lawyer. You might go look for a white lawyer over a black lawyer. Or, or if you need a doctor, you might seek out a, a white doctor over a black doctor. In fact, if your lemonade were warm, you might go way down the street to get the white man's ice over the black man's ice, deeply believing that the white man's ice was colder, deeply internalizing the myth of white superiority. Resignation, helplessness, hopelessness, which turns into a lot of self-destructive health behaviors, which I'm sure you all see. It turns into not registering to vote or not even voting even if you are registered, which also has health ramifications. And really, internalized racism is about members of the stigmatized races accepting the limitations to our own full humanity of the box into which we've been placed. So when you hear young students of color, high school students of color, one of them's trying to be the valedictorian and the others are teasing them saying, you know, so-and-so is just trying to be white. We need to stop that because since when did white people claim exclusive access to excellence? No, they did not. You're listening to Kamara Phyllis-Jones on Racism and Health. This is Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. Because of the pandemic, we would like to make MP3s, PDFs, and written transcripts of this program available to you free of charge. Just call us at one 800 444 Seven, seven. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. 
So now I'm going to illustrate these three levels of racism with one of my allegories. I do a lot of teaching through stories. All of my allegories, almost all of them, are prompted by something I've seen with my own real eyes. So first I'm going to tell you what I saw with my own real eyes. Then we're going to make this a story about racism. So my husband and I, newly married, moved to Baltimore so I could finish my PhD at Hopkins. And we bought our first freestanding house, which was a lovely house with a big wraparound porch on it with flower boxes all on the porch. And we bought the house in October, so that wasn't really the time to be planting. But when spring came, we're all excited. We're going to decorate our porch. And as we went out there, we saw that some of the boxes had dirt in them, but some of the boxes were empty. So my husband very dutifully goes down to the gardening store, and he's hauling big old bags of potting soil. And we fill up the empty boxes. And then we plant equal numbers of our marigold seeds at the time into each of the boxes. And we water each of the boxes. And, you know, I'm not the gardener, so I'm just going to sit back and be delighted. But about three weeks later, I'm walking out of my front door onto my porch, and I stopped in my tracks because what I saw made me think that we had planted completely different species in some boxes compared to the others because some of the boxes were full of plants, and the plants in them were tall and vigorous looking, and some of the boxes just had a few plants in them, and those plants were scrawny and scraggly looking. And then I realized what had happened. That potting soil that my husband had brought was rich, fertile soil. So every single seed planted in the rich, fertile soil had sprouted with the strong seed growing very tall and vigorous, and even the weak seed had made it halfway up. But that old soil that we had found in the boxes turned out to be poor, rocky soil. So the weak seed planted in the poor, rocky soil had just died, and even the strong seed in that poor, rocky soil had to struggle to make it to a middling height. And if you all are gardeners, maybe you've composted half of your garden, many of you may have seen this same thing with your own eyes, and it's an image about the importance of the soil, the importance of the environment. But now I'm going to make it a story about racism by introducing a gardener. So now we have a gardener who has two flower boxes, one which she knows to have rich, fertile soil, and one which she knows to have poor, rocky soil. And she has seed for the same kind of flowers, except some of the seed is going to produce pink blossoms, and some of the seed is going to produce red blossoms. And this gardener prefers red over pink. So what does she do? She puts the red seed in the rich, fertile soil and the pink seed in the poor, rocky soil. And three weeks later, in her flower boxes, she sees what I saw in mine. In that rich, fertile soil, all of the red seed has sprouted. The strong red seed is growing very tall and vigorous, and even the weak red seed has made it halfway up. In that poor, rocky soil, the weak pink seed has died. And here comes the strong pink seed, just struggling to make it to a middling height. And then in these two flower boxes, those flowers go to seed. And the next year, the same thing happens. And then those flowers go to seed. And year after year after year after year, the same thing happens. Until finally, about 10 years later, the gardener's coming, and she's looking at her flower boxes, and she says, you know, I was right to prefer red over pink. Mmm. So we're going to interrupt the story there to say that this first part of the story is how institutionalized racism works where you had the initial historical insult of the separation of the seed into the two types of soil. You had the contemporary structural factors of the flower boxes keeping the soil separate. And then through inaction in the face of need, you have perpetuation of the inequity. But let's pick the storyline back up and say, okay, well, where is personally mediated racism in this garden? Well, the gardener is looking at red, loving red, and she looks over at pink and she says, oh, Those pink flowers sure are scrawny and scraggly. She plucks off the pink blossoms before they can even go to seed. Or maybe she notices that a pink seed has blown into the rich, fertile soil. So she plucks it out before it can establish itself. 
which is some of the anti-affirmative action stuff that goes on. <laughs> and where would internalized racism be in this garden? Well, the red flowers are just living their lives, enjoying being red, many of them not even understanding that they're benefiting from enriched soil. The pink flowers are looking over at red, wishing with all of their hearts that they too could be red. And here come the bees. And the bees are minding their own business, collecting nectar, but of course they're pollinating at the same time. So here comes a bee into a pink flower, and then into another pink flower, and then toward this pink flower, and this pink flower is like, get away from me, bee. Do not bring me any of that pink pollen. I prefer the red. Because the pink flower has internalized that red is better than pink. So the question now arises, what do we do to set things right in this garden? So we could start by addressing the internalized racism. So we can go over to the pink flowers and we can say, pink is beautiful, power to the pink. Right? <laughs> it's a good intervention. I'm not making light of that intervention. It's an important intervention. But if that's all we do, it's not going to change the situation in which they find themselves. So you say, okay, well, let's address the personally mediated racism. Let's have a conversation with that gardener. Or better yet, let's have a workplace multicultural workshop for the gardener. <laughs> It's all good. It's all good. So we have our workshop, right? And in the workshop, we say, dear gardener, would you please stop plucking those pink flowers? And maybe she will, and maybe she won't. But even if she does, it's not going to change the situation in which they find themselves. I think that if we want to set things right in the garden, we need to address the institutionalized racism, which means we have to either break down the boxes and mix up the soil, or you can keep separate boxes too if you want to, although in my mind it makes it easier to continue segregating resources going forward. But if you keep separate boxes, you have to enrich that poor rocky soil until it's as rich as the rich fertile soil. And when you do that, the pink flowers will flourish. They'll be looking beautiful, grand, and glorious. And in that intervention on the institutionalized racism, you will help also address the internalized racism. Because now pink, looking equally beautiful to the red, Actually, you know, those pink flowers have been, that seed was selected for survival and strength. So I'll say looking at least equally beautiful to the red. With the flowers looking equally beautiful, pink will no longer be looking at red, wanting to be red, or thinking that red is better. You may also, in that intervention on the institutionalized racism, address the personally mediated racism. Now, the original gardener may have to go to her grave preferring red over pink. But her children, growing up and seeing the flowers equally beautiful, will be less likely to have that kind of attitude. So this story has been to illustrate each of these levels of racism, institutionalized, personally mediated, and internalized, and to very strongly suggest that if we want to set things right in the garden, we have to at least address the institutionalized racism. Good to address all of the levels at the same time, but at least address the institutionalized racism. And when we do, all the other levels will take care of themselves. Now, before I leave this story, there's one more question I haven't asked yet which is, who is the gardener? After all, the gardener is the one that I gave the power to decide, the power to act, and control of resources, which in my mind are the elements of self-determination. In fact, power to act is agency. Sometimes, instead of giving people their own agency, we set up agencies for them, right? Well, this slide used to say, who is the gardener? Government, power to decide, power to act, control of resources. That was until I went to CDC, and I changed my slide. <laughs> But government is a big part of the gardener, as our media, as our foundations, as our corporations, as our communities to the extent that they have self-determination. But whoever the gardener is, 
It is dangerous when she is allied with one group. I painted her red. That's why she prefers red over pink. And it is also dangerous when she's not concerned with equity. When she can look at her flower boxes and think that her garden is beautiful because she's not even really counting the pink flowers as part of her garden. And our challenge is what to do about the gardener. Do we make the gardener striped or polka dotted or fuchsia? Do the pink flowers have to grow or recruit their own gardener? Lots of different questions can come out of this story. I was once asked, after telling this story, a very insightful question, which was, um, why should the red flowers share their soil? Now, that shows the power of the story to me, first of all, because if we were talking about racism between you and me, that, that question would never come up, right? My answer to that question is that that soil does not belong to the red flowers. It belongs to the garden. Another interesting observation would be, what if that is not the original gardener standing there, but that is the gardener's great-great-great-great-grandchild? Here we are, right? What then? And that talks about the importance of three things. First of all, that great-great-great-great-grandchild has grown up seeing the flowers equally, may not even think there's another possibility. So we first have to make the differences in the vigor and heights of the pink and red flowers a problem. And actually, the 16th Surgeon General, Dr. David Satcher, in 1998 with President Clinton, when he announced an initiative to eliminate racial and ethnic health disparities by the year 2010, did that. He changed the conversation from this is black infant mortality, this is white infant mortality, and our job is to do this, to the job is to do this. So he put equity squarely on the agenda. But so what? So now, we, now we're concerned. Now there's a question, but what else do we need to do? Well, we need to make those flower boxes transparent. We need to be talking about the differences in the quality of the soil. Otherwise, we won't have any idea how to intervene. And we need to talk about history. We need to make it clear that those pink seed did not just jump over into that poor rocky soil and decide to stay there, right? And in fact, whenever you're trying to solve a problem, you need to bring to say, what is the history of this problem? Because by bringing history to the decision-making table, you will have a lot of traction on how to undo that problem. So I think this gets me back. I've never said this before, but getting it back to the, the fact that that garden isn't beautiful the way it is. And that if we were to change the garden or mix up the soil or, you know, find some extra soil, but I think it's gonna, we're going to have to mix up the soil. But actually, mixing up the soil might strengthen those red flowers. Somebody told me, the last time I told this story, it was to a group of undergrads, and somebody who had been like a, a landscaper you know, in the summer said, you know, when we take greenhouse plants and we're going to put them outside, and they're in that rich greenhouse soil, but now we're going to put them outside, we can't just leave them, just dig a hole and put them in there. We need to mix that poorer soil with that, or else that plant is going to be stunted and it's growth, and I was like, wow. You know what I'm saying? Like, you think that you're all advantaged with your greenhouse soil, but you can't survive, you know, in a different circumstance unless we mix it up. But whatever it is, we need to get everybody on board that the gardener needs to be changed. And furthermore, the gardener who thinks that their garden is beautiful, that's only because they haven't gone down the block to see other people's gardens. You know, but we as a, Americans don't look at other nations to try to get any insight about anything. You know, we think we know everything, right? So there's going to be a lot of that. It's going to be a lot of, of enlisting citizenship among all of the flowers, all of the flowers, to, to try to have some agency. The, the flowers need to be finding out what's going down the street. Even the gardener won't tell them, you know. Why is it so hard for people to say the word racism? I think that all of our families need to be talking about racism at our dinner tables, 
at least once a week. So now, you know, I know I grew up in a black family and I knew, you know, we didn't dwell on it, but sometimes it would come up when we were told that we had to be, you know, had to be better just to be judged the same. You know, the way I said it to my son, who is a soccer player, is once he was coming home and he was saying, oh, you know, that was really an unfair ref, you know, in, in the soccer game. And I said, you know, that's what racism is like. You know, it's like having an unfair ref, but you have to just play that much better so that even with an unfair ref, you can, you know, make it where you're trying to go. So, so we have, you know, communities of color, families of color have these kinds of conversations. Or when somebody calls somebody a name, you know, say that doesn't have anything to do with you, it shows their ignorance. And we have these kinds of conversations. There are many conversations going around. I mean, after each of these young black men is killed down with no, no um, accountability, on the part of police. We are having lots of conversations. I put my son in again, and he's like, Mom, stop talking to me. I said, you need to know. You need to know where you live. You need to know that when they see Malcolm Singleton, they don't see brilliant national merit scholar, you know, going, brilliant soccer player, all this. They don't, they, they see a young black man, and in our neighborhood, because we live in a predominantly white neighborhood, they might see a young black man doesn't belong here, boom. Right, so talking, Talking about racism, so when things present, so everybody, not just families of color, all families tonight should be talking about what happened in Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma. All families tonight, and the fact that all of those people in that sorority, SAE, knew that song. Do you think he just taught him that, that one person taught that song right then? No, they were all, they knew that song. That song was probably foundational, right? So when you see, you know, in, after Hurricane Katrina, you see all these black and brown people on the roofs. And, and, you know, the young child might say, well, why is that? You know, engage. Talk about why there's this differential opportunity to get out, differential access to resources. All that. We need to talk about these things. So that is the role. It is very difficult for white people, if their parents never talk to them about racism, to bring up the conversations. In fact, many white people sort of think, well, if this were important, my parents would have talked to me about it. And so it can't really be real. I just made a whole case that institutionalized racism is the most important level. There are two approaches to measuring institutionalized racism. The first is to ask the question, could racism be operating here and scan for evidence of racial disparities, not only in outcomes, but also in opportunities. So scan not only for are there differences in the heights and vigors of the pink and red flowers, but also look at the differences in the quality of the soil. But that's just, could racism be operating here? Yes, we already know. We can look at how education is distributed in this country, or housing, or income, or anything. We say, yes, racism could be operating here. But the more important question is, how is racism operating here? Because that gives us the way to have traction on it. And I am so clear that racism is not a cloud or a miasma that we cannot get a handle on. It is a system with identifiable and addressable mechanisms which are in our structures, policies, practices, norms, and values, where structures are the who, what, when, and where of decision-making, who's at the table and who's not, what's on the agenda and what's not. And in fact, anytime you find yourself at a decision-making table, your first job might be to look around and say, who is not here who has an interest in this proceeding? And then not to just you know, represent them, but to really try to find them a way to the table. If structures are the who, what, when, and where of decision-making, then policies are the written how, the stuff that's written down in our laws and things like that. It's easy to look at, although sometimes we should also look at what policies do not, are not here that if they were here, could be doing something good. 
Practice is the norms of the unwritten how of decision-making. That's harder to get a handle on. The shoulder tapping, will you be on my board, and the like. But we need to try to measure those things. And most importantly, perhaps, the values, which are the why. So I used, my gardener's tale used to be all about the importance of enriching that poor rocky soil. But now I recognize that even if we were to do that, if the gardener continued to prefer red over pink, she would find ways in the future to continue favoring red over pink. So her initial preference for red over pink, which some people would describe as cultural racism, is important for us to address. We need to say that black lives matter, all lives matter. Right? I want to say that that definition that I gave you guys of racism can actually be generalized to be a definition of any system of structured inequity. So you could say, what is sexism? That's a system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on gender that unfairly disadvantages some, unfairly advantages others, and saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. And in fact, there are many axes of inequity operating in our society, intersecting in communities and in, in, in individuals, including race, gender, ethnicity, labor roles, nationality, sexual orientation, on and on and on. And each of these is operating as, as a risk marker for how opportunity is structured and value is assigned. Some of them are also risk factors in the pathway to disease, but all of these are risk markers for how opportunity is structured and how value is assigned. I devote my work to race as the axis of inequity and racism as the system of inequity, not because I don't recognize that all this other stuff is going on, but because racism is foundational in our nation's history, continues to have profound impacts on the health and well-being of our citizens, and yet many people are in denial of its continued existence and relevance. So that's why I do racism. What is health equity? Health equity is assurance of the conditions for optimal health for all people. This is not the Healthy People 2020 definition, which has health equity as achievement of the highest level of health for all people. I agree that that's our goal. But in my mind, health equity is a process. It's not something that we hit that last Sunday, you know, hoorah. <laughs> right? We achieved it. Hoorah. It's an ongoing process of assurance. And actually, assurance is one of the three core functions of public health, along with assessment and policy development that were identified by the Institute of Medicine. Assurance of what? Of the conditions for optimal health, the social determinants of health, for whom? For all people. Not all people, especially anybody, but all people. How do we get there? Achieving health equity requires at least these three things. Valuing all individuals and populations equally, recognizing and rectifying historical injustices, and providing resources according to need. And how is health equity related to health disparities? Health disparities will be eliminated when health equity is achieved. Health disparities is about counting the numbers of different colored bodies at the bottom of the cliff or counting the differences in the height and vigor of the pink and red flowers. But health equity is about assuring equal resources and access and opportunities along that cliff face or in those boxes. Who in this room has ever heard of ICERD, the International Convention on the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. Yay, one person. <laughs> you know what this is? It wasn't a convention like a meeting. This is an international anti-racism treaty that was voted into being by the UN General Assembly back in 1965. 
Wow, who knew? Who knew? Okay, so do you think the U.S. signed this treaty? No. <laughs> Is that right? No. Yes! Yes! The U.S. signed it in 1966. See? Right. Okay, but, you know, the trick there is that our diplomats can go and sign whatever treaties they want to, you know. They can sign whatever they want to. A treaty doesn't have force over us until the Senate ratifies it. Okay. Do you think the U.S. Senate ratified this treaty? Well, that's a trick question. Yes! <laughs> they did, 28 years later in 1994, but the U.S. Senate ratified this treaty. What that means is that today we have international treaty obligations to do right by this nine-page treaty. Our obligations include submitting periodic reports on how we're doing. The reports are due every two years, but we're allowed to bundle them into six-year groups. So our second report uh, was submitted in 2007 to this committee. And then, you know, when the, um, the committee receives a report, they get shadow reports, parallel, you know, reports from all different kinds of people. You guys, National Association of Social Work, may have submitted some parallel reports. I don't know. You should check it out. And then the committee sends back what they call their concluding observations. So in 2008, for that second report, we got a 14-page document. It's not a telephone book, but a 14-page document with the concluding observations. And it starts out, Dear United States, thank you for your report. <laughs> we remain concerned about racial profiling, residential segregation, disproportionate incarceration, differential access to health care, the achievement gap in education, and on and on and on. Paragraph 13, dear United States, you need to put up a system for ensuring compliance with this treaty, you know, at the federal, state, and local levels. Paragraph number 43, dear United States, you need to let your people know about the existence of this treaty. <laughs> so every time I talk, I do my part, right? <laughs> well, the, the current status is that we actually submitted the third report in 2013, uh, our State Department writes these reports. This is not some little secret thing. You can go to the State Department. And see. The websites I'm giving you are the UN report from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights that oversees all of these treaties. But anyway. Okay, so we submitted our report. Now, the, the, third, the second report read, read something like this. Uh, we're the United States. We have laws against these things. Okay. <laughs> The third report read something like this. We're the United States. We have laws against these things, but we, but we recognize that sometimes you know, we, things happen, and so we're trying to make things right. I really wish that we'd have a report that said, Dear, you know, that we're the United States, and we're going to make sure that these things don't happen, right? Like, you know, like not be reactive or whatever. But anyway, so there were 82 parallel reports that were submitted. The committee considered it in August of 2014, and the concluding observations are there. I have just skimmed them, which is why I didn't summarize them. But one of the things that they call for in my skimming was something like a national conversation on racism. They don't say those words together. It's like a national dialogue. But anyway, that is what I think we need in this country. And the time is right for national conversation on racism. So if we want to do it, we actually have maybe some basis in our international treaty obligations to t move that forward. How is racism operating here? And look at structures, policies, practices, norms, and values. I think that we can really dismantle this system and put in its place a system in which all people can know and develop to their full potentials. Racism is most often passive, and the three stages are to name racism, ask how is racism operating here, and organize and strategize to act. I hope that we'll all stand up. Thank you very much.
That was Kamara Phyllis-Jones on racism and health. She spoke at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work in March 2015. Kamara Phyllis-Jones is a family physician and epidemiologist whose work focuses on the impact of racism on health. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We offer our weekly program free of charge to all public and community radio stations in the United States, Canada, Australia, and beyond. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Richard Wolff, Naomi Klein, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and Noam Chomsky. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. Because of the pandemic, we would like to make MP3s, PDFs, and written transcripts of this program, Kamara Phyllis-Jones on Racism and Health, available to you free of charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Diana Acro recorded the program. The Kronos Quartet performs our theme music. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Hello. Hello. What is it? CJSW. This is Crispin Glover. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you.